everyone. Hi, I'm Cecilia, the president of Jacksonville Young Democrats. And I'm Lene, the vice president of Jack's Young Dems. Welcome to Keeping It Local, a series where we interview local candidates and elected officials about issues that matter. People familiar with Jack's Young Dems know that our goal is to create opportunities for voters in Jacksonville to hear from their elected officials and candidates seeking office. Due to COVID-19, we, like many, have had to change the way in which we operate. Instead of hosting in-person forums featuring candidates and elected officials, we have created this series. We hope this helps inform and engage listeners about local politics. Today's interview will be with Donna Deegan, a person likely familiar to you. She is a Jacksonville native, former television news anchor, and breast cancer awareness advocate. Donna is running for Congress in District 4, and this was a pre-recorded interview in which we covered her views on healthcare, partisanship, and the current COVID-19 times. As mentioned before, this is part of a greater series. We would love to hear your feedback, so let us know what you think and who you would like us to interview. All thoughts can be sent to our email, jacksyoungdems at gmail.com. We hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today for our new series, Keeping It Local. Uh, can you explain your district to us and who can vote for you? Yeah, so, um, so I am in District 4, and that is almost all of St. John's County, with the exception of about five or six precincts down in the very um, southern uh, end. Um, and then um, all of Duval with a cutout for basically the urban core, which, which has been cut out, and this is all part of the whole um, gerrymandering that happened in our district where, where everything's sort of cut up, you know, for, for political purposes, but so a, a, a big chunk of Jacksonville um, with a cutout for basically downtown and, and the North Bank uh, and then all of Nassau County. So, um, so we have about almost 700,000 people in the district. So it's a really big district. Yeah. So typically, Democratic candidates have a hard time gaining traction in this district. What are you doing differently? Well, I think when I came into this race, I came in because one of the things I saw was um, just this hyper bitter partisanship that I felt was not serving anybody. And I've spent my entire career, my entire life um, in journalism, basically covering politics and talking to people on all sides and sharing people's positions and sharing people's stories and really listening. And so I think what's missing from today's political discourse is listening. <laughs> you know, uh, I think everybody likes to likes to, to spout off, but not a whole lot of people like to actually take the time to listen. So, so that's really what I've been trying to do in the first, um, in the first couple of months of the campaign. Um, we did something that my opponent hasn't done in the entire four years he's been in office, and that's hold town halls. We had three town halls, one in Duval, one in St. John's, and, and, um, and uh, one in Nassau, just to try to have a sort of a listening campaign for people around the district. And um, so that, that's what I think sets me apart. I think people know me. I've been in the community for almost 30 years as a local news anchor. And then because of my travails with cancer, uh, I started a foundation which has connected the community in, in a number of ways, including my, um, my race that brings in folks from all over. So I think we've created a lot of goodwill over the years and a lot of trust. And so my hope is um, that people are really ready for somebody who wants to speak to everyone, who wants to be bipartisan as opposed to um, constantly having to, to uh, 
to have those bitter partisan fights that leave so many of us out. So, so that's that. What I'm doing is trying to reach out to say, listen, I'm here, I'm listening, um, and please come and, and and join what I think is the only way forward, and that is to work together. Well, that kind of leads us to our next question, which is, uh, how have your past experiences informed how you would do your job as a congresswoman? Yeah, I, I think number one is um, certainly in in my years as a journalist. Uh, I think the tools of, of going into a situation without a preconceived notion, uh, I think the best journalists do that. If you, if you go into a situation with a preconceived notion of how things are gonna go or what the story should be or what people are going to think or say, I think you very, very often miss who they are or miss the story. So I think I, think I bring a set of skills uh, to this race that, that a lot of people sort of maybe don't have or take for granted. Um, I, I think I have a, a, a good number of skills in terms of both listening and communicating, so that's helpful. But then I think my experience as a cancer survivor and, and somebody who then connected and has been connecting for 17 years with our underserved community, I've spent a lot of time understanding really the underlying problems of our healthcare system and, and, and really of our folks that are struggling. And if you look at this current pandemic, you know, most of the people that have lost their jobs, 40% of the people who have lost their jobs in this are people who make under $40,000 a year. Um, those are the people I have been in constant communication with for the past 17 years. So I think I bring a unique set of skills just given my ability to empathize with those people, given what I've been through, but also just, um, just the fact that I've been in that world for so long. So I understand, I understand what needs to be fixed. Well, yeah, speaking of healthcare, you said that healthcare is a human right and that you support universal healthcare for all Americans. So what does that look like? Is that a Medicare for all plan, Medicare for all who want it, or is there some other plan that you want to uh, support? Well, let me just say that my, my, my absolute goal is to, to get to universal health care, to make sure that everybody has the health care they need. I think that, that in, a, in a country as rich as ours, um, it really is immoral that we don't have health care for everybody. Uh, I think that you have to live in the reality of, of the political dynamics that we have. And I think that if you really take a look at, at how divided we are and how we can get from point A to point B, to me, what makes the most sense is to, first of all, protect the gains we've made, right? Because right now they're under attack. We have an administration right now that is trying to repeal um, well, already did try to repeal, but now is trying to fight in court um, the Affordable Care Act, which covers pre-existing conditions, allows people to stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26, gets rid of caps on lifetime coverage. So the very first thing we have to do is protect that. The second thing we have to do is to create a very high quality public option. This is my opinion. I would be open to many avenues to universal health care. So I'm not married to this particular solution. This is the one that I see is the easiest to get a bipartisan agreement on. Okay. So we, we create a high quality public option that allows people to, to, to come into a, a Medicare type system. It wouldn't be quite like Medicare, but it would be a Medicare type system that doctors and healthcare providers would have to accept um, that would have a, a payout that would be acceptable to those groups. So there's a balance that has to be had there, but, but it would start to bring down premiums. Um, and then we would have to go back and, and look at some other things that we could do co cost lever wise, like 
like bringing the pharmaceutical companies to the table to say, look, you know, you have to play here too. You guys are making billions of dollars. You can still make your billions of dollars and negotiate drug prices so that everybody can afford to get their medicines. So I think those are some of the things we can do immediately. There are some issues with patents we need to take a look at too, that there's some abuses there in terms of, of what pharmaceutical companies are doing. But at the end of the day, that will move us in the direction of getting public um, support for once people see what a public option would look like and how it would work, I think you're going to see a lot more support for that. So, so I think you have to move people in that direction, and that's my hope. Um, so you'd mentioned this a little bit before, um, but as a founder for the Donna Foundation, a breast cancer nonprofit, um, what kind of insights has that work given you into the healthcare system? Well, like I said, I, you know, I feel like I have worked for so many years with people who are truly trying to keep every ball in the air that they possibly can. They're working as hard as they can. They're doing everything they can do to put food on the table for their families and to survive. But you, but you, when you put all those people that, again, before this pandemic ever happened, you had a huge majority, or not a huge majority, you had about 40% of the population um, that, that, that literally could not afford an unexpected bill. Um, and so those are the people that I have dealt with. You, you throw cancer in the mix on top of, of what those folks are dealing with. And now they're trying to choose between food and medicine. And obviously that is no choice at all. So, so what that started to show me was that our healthcare system is broken. We don't have a system that is equitable for everybody. We don't have one that is accessible to everybody. You don't get the same type of treatment by going to the emergency room when you need care as you would by having a robust healthcare plan. And so I think all of that has shown me several things um, that people really are by and large, really truly trying to do the best they can. Um, I get infuriated when I hear some politicians say that um, oh, people would just rather you know, collect a, a check from the government than work. That's just not true for the huge majority of people. People want to work um, and they want to be able to support their families, but this is an enormous burden that they already had and now place a pandemic on top of that. And people are, we've lost 27 million people have lost their healthcare through this pandemic because their healthcare is associated with their jobs that they've now lost. So we have to have somebody, um, I think, that has had been through that experience. There's nothing like empathy. Um, you know, sympathy is great, empathy is better. When you can actually put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has been in a situation like I have, you know, having gone through breast cancer three times, um, the third time in a, a really dire situation, um, it was financially stressful for me and I had great insurance. So I think for a lot of people, it really seems like no choice at all. So they just choose to not go to the doctor. Um, I, I, I've, I've had several incredibly heartbreaking stories of, of women who, who literally waited till their cancer was stage four to go to the doctor when they literally had no choice because it was either coming through their breast or, or had some other horrible emergent situation because they didn't want to bankrupt their families. And that's not a choice that people in this country should have to make. I definitely agree with you. Um, so Title X programs provide affordable health or affordable birth control and reproductive health care to people with low incomes. Um, including those who couldn't otherwise afford health care services on their own. Um, in 2019, the Trump administration introduced the gag rule, which bans doctors in the Title X program across the country 
from telling women how they can safely and legally access abortion. In 2020, Congress failed to include language in the spending bill, which would have reversed the gag rule. Uh, if elected, would you support reversing the gag rule? I would. Um, I, I, I think that what, what this administration has shown over and over again is that it has very little regard uh, for the health and safety of women. Um, we haven't even been able to, to reaffirm the Violence Against Women Act. Um, you know, it is, it is a travesty what has happened to women's rights in this administration. I would absolutely do that. I believe that, that women need to make their own health care decisions, and I believe that they, they deserve to, to know what the options are out there. Um, to me, this falls in the, in, in the same vein as, as, um, as, as wiping out all the, all the scientific information <laughs> off of so many of the government websites or, 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 or telling doctors they can no longer um, you know, keep keep health statistics on gun violence or talk to families about things like that. I mean, it is an absolute gaslighting of, of, of people to, to act like these things aren't issues. Um, and I think that we need to make sure that we are protecting women's rights, but also just protecting, um, protecting science uh, and the ability to inform uh, on science. What would you do to ensure access to substance abuse and mental health services for your constituents? Well, the first thing we need to do is stop cutting those things. Um, there have been enormous cuts to those programs in the last three years, last three and a half years. Um, there have been enormous cuts to not only, not only uh, health, mental health programs, but overall um, we've seen, I mean, look, at, look at, at, at the budgets year over year, every single year those programs get cut. And I think if, if, I were, if I were in Congress, I would be um, arguing night and day to include th those. Mental health is, is as much a part of any sort of robust health program as anything else. It's, it, it is health. Um, so I think that we need, to, we need to put back what we've lost, first of all. I'll say that again. I mean, I, mean, I don't think it can be overstated how much we have lost um, during this administration of funding that, that we used to just consider fundamental. Um, so absolutely, I would fight for increased funding uh, for mental health, um, for health period, but mental health is a big part of that. Um, as elected, what kind of plans do you have to help us recover in a post-COVID world? Um, I know you may not have a full answer yet because we really, we don't know completely what it'll look like, um, but based on what you've seen so far. Well, that's a big question, right? There's a lot of things, but I, but I think, I think first of all, um, I will say what I've said from day one uh, with this crisis, and I started talking about this, you know, way long before most people were talking about it in this community, that we cannot separate health from the economy. It is a false choice to say we either have to go back to work or we have to deal with the health crisis in a meaningful way. You can't do one without the other effectively, in my opinion. So, so what I think we need to initially do is we need, we need a robust plan for testing and contact tracing. Those are two things we still do not have. Um, and, and I think that, that with all the chaos and the noise that we're hearing every day, it, it, it sometimes gets lost. But unless we can have a really robust testing and contact tracing plan, we don't ever get our arms around this. We don't know where the cases are. We don't know, know, know how it's being spread. And therefore, it continues to spread. Um, and, and therefore, who is going to feel good about 
going to a restaurant or going to, to the gym or going to, and, and maybe there are going to be enough people to do that to, 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 to make some impact on the economy. But I think in order to have a large impact on the economy, we must deal effectively with the health crisis until we can get a vaccine um, you know, for, this, for this virus. So that, that's number one. But also, um, I think the other thing that we must do economically is I think we have to put a, a, a meaningful plan out there that will help not only individuals, but businesses and states um, and local governments. Like, like we are seeing, I believe that, that, that uh, the House will vote on a bill today that will do some of that. Um, to try to to prop up some of these things, to try to continue putting money into the economy while people are still uh, at home or, or afraid to go out um, until we get our arms around this. It's, it's, it's a vicious circle. So, so I think we need to continue to, to look at investment in places that will end up in the long term bolstering the middle class. If you go back and you look over history, you'll see that the times in history that, that, that our economy has been the best have been those times when we have invested in the middle class. And I think if we do that now, while people are struggling, then we can start some infrastructure that we've needed to do for so long and we can, and we can build around that. I think those are the types of things that will for the long-term serve us. So we may have some short-term deficit issues, but we need for the long-term to make those investments or the money doesn't come back into the economy to solve that equation. So, so that's what I would do. That's a really great answer. I think that makes a lot of sense. And a questionnaire for Ballotpedia, you said that uh, you believe extreme partisanship is tearing us apart. And the challenge that we must face is how to see the humanity in each other. Mm -hmm. And that you uh, worry that unless we learn how to once again disagree agreeably, we won't meet the needs of the people. So in a country where even a global health crisis has become a partisan issue, how do you disagree agreeably? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, I have to say that's, that's, it's disappointing, but I want you to remember this. And this is what I said going in. You have to remember that I think, and especially now, I think most of us are living in a social media world, right? We see the, the, the hot takes on social media and the people that are largely the loudest voices are who? The people that are way on the polarized ends of, 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 of both sides. But if you look at actual polling numbers, it's remarkable how many people are grasping the gravity of this. So if you look at actual polling numbers, and I'm talking about no matter what poll you're looking at, 72% of the population, anywhere between 72 and 75% of the population is saying, we need to get our arms around this global health crisis. We trust the scientists more than we trust the politicians. Um, common sense, and that's really been my argument for the whole district, is we've got to bring back some common sense. And what I really think is that there are a lot more people who are, who are like-minded on this in terms of, let's take a beat, let's see what we can pull from, 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 from all sides, but, but, by, but let's make sure that we're using common sense solutions to come to, to where we need to be. So, so yes, are, have, we, have we seen this become a partisan debate? We have, but here's what I want you to understand. And I can tell you this from my experience of being in the media for 30 years. The media can make it look like um, a postage stamp size group is a million people. Okay, it's all in how the story is, is covered. And unfortunately, these protests all over the country, because they're, um, to, to, to use a, a tired phrase, they're, 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 they're clickbait, they're sexy to watch, right? With, with people with the guns slung around their, their, their backs, you know, and, and it's horrible to watch. But you have to remember that when you look at the polling, 
they are about 16% of, of the electorate, the, the people that feel this way. So, so I think we need to keep that in perspective, that what we're seeing forward facing is not necessarily what we're going to see at the polls or, or, or doesn't necessarily determine whether people can, can, can come to some common ground. And I think that's going to be um, the most important thing for us to do is to not vilify the people that feel differently than we do, as frustrating as it may be um, to, to have those conversations. I think the biggest challenge for all of us is that we seem to be living in a world where I have my set of facts and you have your set of facts. And the truth is there are objective truths out there and we have to make sure that, that, that we work hard to help people um, from wherever they're coming from, get to those objective truths. So um, it's, I, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I think it's certainly worth uh, trying because for your generation, if we don't try, I think, um, I don't know what happens to you guys if we get another four years of this stuff, of this divisiveness and chaos and, and lack of plan and, and, and vilification of the other. Uh, I just don't know what happens if we get another two or four years of it. So speaking of common ground, what are some issues where you could see a potential for compromise? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use healthcare. You know, I'll use healthcare as, as a, as a, a, a compromise area. You know, I, I know that there are a lot of people that that have, have put their flag in, into Medicare for all. And look, I get that. Um, I really do. But but I think that unlike back when we passed the Affordable Care Act, um, I, I think that you, you literally have political will on both sides, um, not necessarily the loudest voices, but I think you have political will on both sides to come to a solution there. If you have the right people in you know, pulling the levers of power. I think that's the problem is that, is that with, with this administration, unfortunately, we have not had a lot of lawmakers who've been willing to stand up and say, no, this is not what most of the American people want. Um, so I think on healthcare, I think in, in a very real way, um, that public option um, proposal is a, is a compromise. Um, I think that on, on firearms, uh, on common sense gun legislation, 93% of the population, 93% want universal background checks. But because of the people that we have in power right now who are afraid to butt up against the people that, 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 that are, are funding them, we don't have that. I think it would take such a small shift um, to, to, to get people to understand that that needs to happen. Because I do think there are many, 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 I can tell you just from being out and talking to people, 87% of Republicans are among the 93% who want universal background checks. We can get to a compromise on that if, if, and when I say compromise, because there's a lot of people that want a whole lot more, um, including me, uh, but, but I think at the, at, the, at the very least, some low hanging fruit is universal background checks. And I think that we can get to that with some compromise with the right people in place. So, so I do believe there are issues on which we can reach a common ground. And I think that we just have to get to a point where it's not the loudest voices that are the only ones that are heard. And I think that's gonna have to really truly take a change in this administration. I don't know that you can do it with Republicans in, um, in the White House and, and in the Senate. I'm not sure that's possible, um, but we'll see, we'll see. I, I'm hopeful that we can make inroads in, in both of those places in the fall. Um, but um, you have to have, I mean, I look at, I look at Vice President Biden and, uh, and, and uh, I know for your generation, for a lot of you, he doesn't seem like that sexy a pick. And I get that. 
Um, but he's a compassionate man who understands the need to come to compromise. And we've got to get back to the point where compromise is not a dirty word. Um, there are some things we can't compromise on. Um, I think we're going to have to take some very quick action on climate if we're going to, if we're going to, um, to avert a, a major catastrophe there. Um, but even on that front, we're going to have to bring people along because that's how our system works. So um, I think we need somebody in the, in the White House and, and in Congress um, who doesn't view compromise as, as somehow um, a weakness because it's, it's the only way we've ever meaningfully gotten anything done for the long term. So uh, what was your favorite interview that you ever conducted as a newscaster? Oh gosh, I did so many fun interviews with people and uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that sticks out and then I'll tell you what probably just selfishly is my, is my favorite. Um, there, there was a, um, a young man that I did a, um, a story with when he was going into kindergarten. Um, and then I, I did an interview with him again when he was graduating from high school. Uh, oh, that's that, was a fun, that was a fun, uh, you know, uh, look back. Uh, he, he, he ended up going to Harper or Yale or something like that and ended up, you know, with, with an, still, I guess, with an incredible career. I, his name escapes me. His last name escapes me right now. His first name was Michael. Um, but that was a fun, that was a really fun interview. But I would say my favorite interview of all time probably has to be with Barack Obama. Um, it was the very last interview that I did, major interview that I did when I was at the TV station before I left. And, um, and I remember I was flying back from a race. We had gone up to Maine to do a race with Joni Benoit Samuelson, who's the first woman Olympic uh, champion. Um, and we were flying back and we were flying into, into uh, uh, Reagan Airport um, to, to change planes. And as we flew over the Capitol, I turned to my husband and I said, you know, what, the only thing that makes me sad is I've interviewed a lot of, a, a lot of people who became president. And I've, I've interviewed a lot of lawmakers, a lot of senators, but I've never interviewed a sitting president. And I said, I'm sad to be ending my career without having done that. And then um, I got a phone call um, from my boss shortly after I, I got back saying, hey, um, I have the opportunity, if you want to, to for a one-on-one -on -one with Barack Obama on this whole wow. government sequester that we have going on right now. We've been, we've been given the opportunity to send a reporter, would you like to go? And I'm like, but I like to go, are you kidding? <laughs> so um, so that, that was an amazing interview. He was... Um, I, I feel like I asked him some pretty tough questions uh, and I was really nervous, uh, yeah. but it was a good conversation and, and I, and I, um, and I, I felt like I did a good job and I felt like it was a, it was a, it was a good conversation for folks in Jacksonville. So probably my favorite interview was Barack Obama and, and probably also just because I have a lot of admiration for him. I think he's, I think he's an amazing human being. I agree. <laughs> <clears throat> cool. Um, what is your favorite thing about Jacksonville? It's home, uh, you know. I think uh, I think that's that's it. You know, you all, home is always in your heart. And 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 I was born and raised here. I was born and raised on the south side, but I've lived at the beaches for, uh, gosh, thirty years at least. Um, and uh, and I I love the beach. I, I love the ocean. I love I love the I love the whole vibe out here. Um, but but really, people in Jacksonville are great people. And I and I think that. Um, you know, politics aside, I, I, I do think that we are a warm and welcoming community. I think we've seen that through my race every single year that people turn out for. And it doesn't matter what political stripe, you know, they are. Or, or um, I think 99.9% I think .9 of the time, people here are just kind, good people. 
And so, um, I don't know. I just love it because it's home, I guess. But I, but I think we have a great community. I think we have one of the, one of those hidden gems of the community that a lot of people still don't know about. And that's what's so fun for me when, when people come in for the race from all over the world and they go, wow, we never thought about Jacksonville, but we'll come back here. And, uh, and that makes me really proud. So why are you the best choice for Congressional District 4 over John Rutherford? Uh, because I show up. Um, because I, I, I am accessible to people. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't tell people they don't deserve to be heard because they don't need to get their 15 minutes of fame or because um, being, being at a town hall would be dysfunctional because then I'd have to listen to you. <laughs> um, but I think beyond that, you know, I, I took exception this week because he sent out um, a correspondence talking about how bipartisan he is. And he's been chosen as one of the top bipartisan. And it's really, bipartisanship is more than occasionally reaching across the aisle to, to, to pass a bill with a member of the other side. And normally those are bills that everybody seems to feel really good about, right? Things that are not overly um, controversial. That's, that's fine. But, but when you spend so much of your time um, in the same bombastic, um, to me demeaning type of conversation that we hear from the White House, um, when you spend a lot of your time degrading people in the other party, when you call one of your own Congress um, people that are, that are serving with you in Congress, an Ayatollah sympathizer, simply because those people um, want information about a, a U.S. attack that, that um, a number of, of white conservative men asked the same questions but didn't get the same attack. To me, that says a lot about your character. Um, so for me, those things have been a, have been a disservice to our community. What I want to do as a representative for this community is bring people together. I want to actually bring people better health care instead of vote to take it away. He voted to take health care away from 23 million people. I would vote to expand health care. He won't even take a look at a universal background check. I am anxious to pass universal background checks, which is resonant with most people in this community, just like expanded health care. He calls climate change a hoax. I believe if we don't get our arms around climate change immediately, we are going to be in horrible trouble, not only in our community, but in our country, in our world. Um, so, so for all those reasons, and, and, and really mostly the reason of, of um, true bipartisanship, that type of a spirit, I think I really embody that far more than, than he does. Um, but beyond all of that, if you even just took him out of the equation and I was just running by myself, I would say that I'm a person who has gotten things done in this community for many, many years. Um, I see a problem. I do everything that I can to fix it. And I, and, I, and I spend a lot of blood, sweat, and tears with the very people who are most affected. And I think those are the types of leaders that we need, people who are willing to roll up their sleeves, get the work done, and not just worry about political power. I could care less about political power. I just want to get some stuff done for this community. And I think that that makes me a better candidate. All right. Well, now it's time for our rapid fire portion of the interviews. So we have 10 questions for you. Ooh, and rapid fire. Okay. All right. 90 seconds to answer them all. Okay. All right, go for it. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. Okay. Number one, if you could be any animal, what would it be? Ah, um, a dog. <laughs> Number two, what is something on your bucket list? Um, I want to run uh, the, uh, the um, Berlin Marathon. 
Very cool. Number three, what makes you laugh no matter what? Um, what makes me laugh no matter what? Goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, my husband, probably. <laughs> um, number four, what is one thing that annoys you the most? Um, Mean-spirited people. Five, what is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Mm, I haven't eaten a lot of strange things, so I'm going to say escargot is probably the strangest thing I've ever eaten. A snail is probably the strangest thing. Six, what is the worst place you could get stuck? Some place cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're pretty safe in Jack's. <laughs> Seven, what is the song you hear the most often? What is the song I hear the most often? Yes. Um, well, lately, um, I have been playing um, Love is Bigger Than Anything in Its Way by U2. I, I play that a lot uh, because I need the reminder. <laughs> um, eight, what is your favorite sport to watch? Football. Um, nine, are you a dog or cat person? I, I like both, but I would have to say dog more than cat. Ten, who inspires you? Um, so many people. I'm inspired by, by people who are, um, who are activists. I'm inspired. If you're, if you're asking for a person in particular, I, I, if you'll, you'll notice on the bottom of all my emails, I have a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, just about unconditional love, unarmed truth and unconditional love. Um, will win the day. And I think that's, um, that's something we can all aspire to. So great message. Awesome. <laughs> well, that was a, a, around 90 seconds or so. We won't count exactly. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, if there's one thing that voters can take away from this entire interview, what would you want that to be? I would want them to know that I am just really excited about going to Congress and bringing their voices to Washington. I'm not interested in power. I'm interested in getting things done for people in the fourth district and, uh, and working together to do it. Donna Deegan, thank you so much. Thank you guys. That was fun.